When Jesus uh, was doing his earthly ministry, he was asked by his disciples to teach them how to pray. And essentially what he said is to pray in private, to play in secret, not public and showy. And this isn't to contradict public prayer, because there is a place for corporate and public prayer. To lift our hands, to lift our mouths, to lift our prayers up to God together. But what he's talking about is when you pray... He's not saying if you pray as a follower of Jesus. He said when you pray. And what he's saying is that it's to have a heart of prayer. To have a heart that what you're in it for is a deeper and more personal relationship with Jesus. That's what it's about. Because he said if you do it showy on the street corner like the Pharisees would that are looking for approval from other people to go look how great that guy is at praying. Then he said that's all the reward you'll have. But if what you're doing is seeking a relationship with me, Jesus says, then that is what you will get. You will get a deeper relationship. And so he said, go in a, pro go in a private place and pray. And in uh, our story of Jonah, as we continue it, Jonah certainly chose a private place to pray. For those of you who don't know, Jonah, at the, uh, what we're going into now, was swallowed by a great fish. And so even if he wanted to be overheard, no one else is in the middle of the sea walking next to his fish trying to listen to what he says. Which if you could walk in the middle of the ocean, I know Jesus walked on top of the water, but in the ocean would be an amazing thing. But modern thinkers, when we think of this story, maybe we question, okay, well, was Jonah really swallowed by a fish? Was he really swallowed? And then we get into the debate of, well, is that a metaphor? Is it just a point behind it? What's going on? And we're not alone in thinking this. There's a story of this little girl who had been taught in Sunday school about the, the story of Jonah. And so she goes into her classroom and starts talking to her teacher about how Jonah was swallowed by a whale. And the teacher says, uh, that's impossible. A, a whale's throat is too small to swallow a person. And the little girl says, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah. And here the teacher thinks that she has a, this little girl trapped. She said, well, what if Jonah's not in heaven? And the little girl, without missing a beat, says, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> Aren't kids wonderful? <laughs> now, that, that may be a true story, but that one might be a fishy tale. But it's beautiful either way. Our primary passage this morning is uh, Jonah 1, 17 to 2, 10. So if you have a hard copy Bible and you want to flip there, I'll just kind of update us. So... Uh, almost like what Netflix does, as if it's pretending you haven't been watched the 12 episodes up to this. It gives you a little recap of what's happened. So in our episodes so far, the first one is that uh, Jonah disobeys. God tells him, go to Nineveh and preach to the people there. And Jonah goes, uh-uh, I'm not going there. And he flees about as far away as he can possibly imagine. And that's a place called Tarshish. And then in our next episode, we see that he's on this ship on the way and God won't be outdone he sends a storm and so he sends this storm as an act of mercy to get Jonah to obey because God cares so much about the people of Nineveh that he wants him to go and talk to them so the pagans on this ship these sailors they start to pray they cry out to their gods so any god that they can think of and the captain comes to Jonah and says wake up how can you sleep why don't you pray for us and Jonah, being the man of God that he was, should have said, okay, I'll pray to God. I'll show them a real God. And no, instead what he does is he just does nothing. 
And so then the, uh, the sailors cast lots to try and determine, okay, whose fault is it that there's this storm? They had a belief that the gods caused all storms, everything, even though they were small G gods. And so they figured out with the lots that it's Jonah. And Jonah now is caught. He realized, okay, I got to fess up. I've been caught with my disobedience. So he fesses up and says, I serve the God of uh, the Hebrews. I serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created everything, the land and the sea. And so the sailors get more and more afraid. And then they go, and then what did you do? And Jonah says, well, I ran away. God told me to go here, and I ran away. And so uh, at that point, uh, he, they ask how to solve this. Jonah says, throw me overboard. But even they aren't willing to do that. They don't want to be responsible for this man's death, even though he's admitted he's the one who caused them to be in this terrible situation. And eventually, after uh, God makes the storm worse, when they try and row away, they throw Jonah overboard. And that's where we, we catch on to Jonah right now. So Jonah 1.17 to 2.10 in the NIV says this. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. The seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought me up, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. May God bless the reading of his word. So the skepticism that we have is, did this really happen? Did Jonah really get swallowed by a great fish and then survive three days inside of this fish? It seems too incredible to be real. So instead, we question history. We question, did this really happen? Was it just a metaphor? And I'm not here to defend uh, your opinion or my opinion. I'm just preaching the word of God this morning. So this really depends on whether you believe in miracles or not. And a belief in miracles or not depends on whether you believe in God or not. And so Jonah is saying, or it's, so the word of Jonah is questioning, this is a matter of faith. Do we believe plainly what the Bible says? God created all. And if he chooses to bend the rules every once in a while for his purposes, then who am I to question that? God uses supernatural and natural ways of interacting with humanity. And the same way that it says in the previous chapter that God sent the storm. And in 117, the word of God says that the Lord provided this great fish. In other uh, versions, in the ESV, for example, it says appointed so this clearly shows us that God controls nature. 
And the, uh, the term fish, in our minds of thinking, we think of a trout or a salmon, maybe, for B.C. But in uh, the Hebrew language, the term fish that is used is quite generic. It can't actually be identified any further or more specifically, and it could mean anything from a great monster to any kind of aquatic sea creature. But uh, so... Uh, some translations call it a whale, some call it a great fish, as the NIV does. But it says that Jonah was in the fish for three days and nights. And this uh, is said as literally as possible, but this also denotes the amount of time that Hebrews believed it took to get down to the realm of the dead. And for uh, the miracle of it, it has three parts to it. The first is that Jonah is rescued from drowning. He surely would have drowned. No matter uh, where, how far out to sea they were, Jonah would have drowned because they were in the middle of this sea. He couldn't possibly have survived this great storm. And the second is that he was inside of this fish for three days. Now, it doesn't take much of a science person, and I'm not a science person, to realize you would get digested in that amount of time. So Jonah should have been not a whole person anymore. And then the third is that he was spit onto dry ground. This fish could have spit them anywhere. It could have spit them out to the deeper into the ocean, but instead he spits them on dry ground. But the essence of this is that there's two points to the miracle. The first is that Jonah's life is saved. And the second is that he still has the ability to fulfill the mission to preach to the Ninevites that God called him to. So God's mercy shows that he has, he's not only saved his own life, but he has the possibility to save the Ninevites as well. And uh, one other strong argument for the historicity, or the, the historical accuracy, rather, uh, for those who believe in Jesus, is that Jesus himself points to this miracle. He calls it the sign of Jonah. That just as, uh, just as he, Jesus, would be in the earth for three days and actually come back to life, Jonah was inside the fish for three days and would come out alive. And so the, the fish, though, isn't the main point of this story. So no matter what you believe about the fish, this shouldn't be the crisis point. This shouldn't be the crux point. Because the fish is just a secondary story. So the fish isn't the main point of the book of Jonah. It's actually only in three verses mentioned. God's mercy is the main point of the book of Jonah. And so the fish is a mere detail, a mere footnote. It shouldn't be a hang-up. So whatever you believe about the fish is actually secondary. But the fish represents God's mercy and his forgiveness of Jonah. Jonah willfully disobeyed God. And he hadn't even asked for forgiveness yet. He hadn't even repented of what he had done, of trying to run away. He admits it to the sailors, but he doesn't actually ask God for forgiveness and yet God still sends this fish to save him. And so Jonah rebelled, and yet God forgives him and still wants him to preach to Nineveh. And this shows the astounding lengths that God is willing to go to save those he loves. That's the point of the story. That God loves Jonah so much he wasn't willing to let him run away. He sent him an opportunity uh, to be reconciled to him. And so the greater miracle in the story of Jonah isn't the fish. It's the lengths God's willing to go to show mercy to his people. And in uh, my daughter's little kid's Bible, the love that it talks about that God has is never giving up, never surrendering, never stopping, always and forever love. 
That's the kind of love that God shows to people. So Jonah on the, on the ship, in the middle of the storm, he's asked multiple times, pray, pray to your God. But what does it take for Jonah to finally pray? It takes a major act of God in sending this fish and saving his life. That's when Jonah prays. So he doesn't pray before God does something. He actually prays after God has done something amazing. And so Jonah doesn't sit there and he doesn't repent. He doesn't say he's sorry. And he doesn't even pray about the sailors. What he prays about is that his own skin was saved. So he says, thank you, God, for saving me. And then he uses this long poetic form, and it's actually quotes of several different psalms. It's this flowery poetic prayer all about how amazing it was that God saved him. Which, don't get me wrong, we need to praise God. We need to thank God for what he does. And we can use amazing biblical poetic words to do it. There's uh, psalms of thanksgiving that David pours out, and that is not at all what I'm critical about about Jonah. But the, the point that I'm uh, critical about is what Jesus said we are to do is to pray with hearts of thanksgiving and to pray hearts that we want to be closer to Jesus. But Jonah's prayer is all about himself. It's all about, well, thank you for saving me. I was so far in the depths and you saved me. He doesn't say anything about the Ninevites that he's called to preach to. He doesn't even say anything about the sailors except uh, uh, alluding negatively about those who cling to idols. But we'll go, we'll go a little bit more into that. But some explanation, the, the term Sheol is uh, the realm of the dead, what the Hebrews thought. So when you died, they thought you, you literally went down to this realm of the dead, Sheol. And uh, throughout the first uh, chapter in a little bit, it talks about go down, which is a metaphor of going down to death. They thought that the realm of the dead was uh, physically lower than the rest of the earth. And the second is that uh, Jonah says, you hurled me into the sea. So he's giving God credit for being in control of the situation. So even though it was the sailors who physically hurled Jonah into the sea, he's saying, God, I know that you caused the circumstances that allowed that to happen. You're the one who's in control. And uh, Jonah's words are easy for us to think that maybe he's had a change of heart. Maybe he feels bad about what he's done. Maybe he feels bad that he ran away from God. But the, uh, the saying is that talk is cheap. And that actions speak louder than our words. And so later on in the book of Jonah, we see that he hasn't really had a heart change. He's thankful that God saved him, but that's about what it, where it lands. But in contrast to that, true repentance is actually turning away from sin and turning towards God. So it's turning away from our sinful disobedience, whatever that looks like, and turning towards God. It's asking for forgiveness and naming our sin and saying, I'm sorry, Lord, for doing this, fill in the blank. Forgive me for doing this, Lord. It's easy to use flowery words and language without truly having a heart of repentance. And Jonah, uh, part of the thing that makes it look like he's maybe repenting is when he says he'll look towards the temple once again. And he actually says, Lord, you banished me, but I'll look to the temple again. God never banished Jonah. Jonah banished himself. He chose to run away from God and from his will. And then he blames God for it. But this, this practice 
was thought that uh, at this time the Lord was in Jerusalem. That's where the holy temple was. And so that's where the holy of holies was. That only one time a year a priest that had went through a long ritual cleansing could actually go into the holy of holies. And they would tie a rope around his ankle just in case he died. If he was sinful or had done something, they could drag his body out. And so it was serious to be with God and to be in his presence. And that shows God's holiness, that he is totally other than us, that he is completely without sin, that we couldn't even possibly look on him in his true form and who he actually is without being burned up. Just as Isaiah says, uh, uh, he has, here's the angel saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the, one of the angels brings a coal and touches his lips to purify him so that he can speak the words of God. This shows the holiness of God. But the, at this time, it was thought that God was in a place. So Jonah, in running away from Jerusalem, thought he was possibly running away from the presence of God. And uh, this is even done today by some religions. Like Muslims, for example, will look at, uh, at their certain times of prayer. They will pray towards Mecca. And this is something that the Hebrews would do at that time. When they prayed, they would pray towards Jerusalem. But in, uh, in the, where this idea comes from is in uh, Numbers 21.9. The Hebrew people had escaped from slavery. They were slaves in Egypt, and they were escaping towards the promised land of Israel. And they started getting bitten by poisonous snakes. So God told Moses... Uh, to fashion this bronze snake. And it says in Numbers 21.9, So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake looked at the bronze snake and they lived. And this, the snake was a symbol for looking on, on God, looking towards God for their help. And so the same words are the same word that for look in this uh, Numbers 21.9 is the same that Jonah uses. He said he'll look towards God, and God will save him. And so the salvation that Jonah is talking about, the true salvation that he's talking about, is that it's by grace alone. Salvation can only come from God. Uh, in John 4.23, Jesus says... To when he's talking to a Samaritan woman, a woman that's, that had vaguely been related to the Jews until they had a, a split, they mixed with Gentiles. But she asks, uh, it says in the, the future that, we'll, that we won't worship here, but we'll worship on this mountain instead. And what Jesus says is that actually yet a time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the God, the Father, in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So what Jesus is saying, it's never been about a place. It's never been about having a nice building. It's always been about the person that you're worshiping. It's always been about actually worshiping the Lord God. And so this is how salvation is tied in. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not about what you do or don't do. It's about actually following the Lord God through his mercy. So by him saying, salvation belongs to the Lord... Jonah's confessing the truth that he understands, that he needs mercy and grace. He's not actually asking for mercy or grace, but he understands it. He has a head knowledge. He knows the right things to say. And this is central to the understanding of the gospel. The gospel is the only way to true reconciliation with God. And it's only through Jesus and what he's done for us. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. 
and you don't deserve it, and neither do I. The only thing is that we can either accept this free gift of God's mercy and love and grace or reject it. And what Jonah is saying is that those who cling to worthless idols are rejecting the love that God is offering them. And that is such a sad thing. And and someone who clings to worthless idols is anyone who puts their trust in anything but God. So an idol, to define it, is anything or anyone that takes the place that only God can fill in your life. There's a theologian who says that everyone has a God-shaped hole in their heart. God created us, and he made us to have a relationship with him. And if we try and fill that relationship with anything else, it's just like trying to fill a black hole. It's never going to be filled. The only thing that can fill that infinite hole is an infinite God. That's the only thing. No matter how many things you pour into it, it's never going to be enough. And so almost anything can be an idol. Human beings are amazingly creative at creating idols. We can, we can come up with almost anything. And, and uh, back in this day, it was literal stone or wood idols that they would carve themselves, and then they would bow down and worship. And uh, we, like to, we like to make fun of them. But one pastor in the state said, you know, uh, we like to think, well, there's those, uh, those pagans back in the day that had these temples where they would worship idols. And, like, that's so silly. Who would do that? And he said, well, if you imagined having one of those pagans and you brought them today to a football game, they'd be like, oh, this is a nice temple. <laughs> there, there are things that we, we worship that we don't even understand that we're worshiping them. And uh, the things that we can have as idols can be bad things. They can be destructive things. They can be terrible things that we know are bad for us. Or they can even be good things. But uh, uh, this same pastor said, good things that become God things are terrible things. Nothing can take the place of God in your life. And so uh, even, (laughs) this is sad, but even religion can be an idol. Even trying to have a constructed faith that you are making yourself can be an idol. So the Pharisees, uh, during Jesus' time, we beat them up a lot because Jesus criticized them fairly harshly, but the Pharisees were a group of people that did their best to come up with rules. They thought the rules in the Old Testament weren't enough, the hundreds of them in there, so they made up their own on top of this. And Jesus doesn't actually criticize their rules. He actually says it's good, the rules that they follow. Those are good. What he criticizes is their heart. He says they have these rules, but they, they, they don't actually follow them with their heart. They just become self-righteous because they're good at following rules. They don't actually do the purpose behind the rules, which is to love God and love people. That's when Jesus was asked to summarize the law. That's what he said. He said, love God and love others. That's the summary of the law. And so all of the rules are meant to either help us love God or love others. That's the Ten Commandments. You boil them down. They're about loving God and loving other people. And so there are played out versions of that. So an idol is something that doesn't actually help us love God or love others. They're usually just things that help us love ourselves, that just feed into ourselves. So uh, don't ask this out loud, but it could be head bowed, eyes closed. Do you have anything in your life that's taken a disproportionate place in your heart.
Do you have anything that you could say, well, maybe I put too much trust in that? Maybe I, maybe I rely too much on that rather than God. And there's, a, there's a, another saying, I'm good at remembering them, but not always who they're from. But if there's any person that you idolize, they're going to disappoint you. And so the saying is, someone you idolize, you'll eventually demonize. Because if you put them in a place that only Jesus can fulfill, they're going to let you down. And then you're going to be upset with them. So money, for example, is a great tool. It can, it can do some amazing things. But it's an awful God. Because it won't fill you up. No matter how much you have, it will never be enough. You can put your trust in money, or you can put your trust in God, but not both. And so Jonah knew the right things. He knew that idols are bad. He was really good at saying this. And he really appreciated what God had done for him. But he only seemed to care for himself. All of his professed piety, all of the rules that he knew that he was supposed to follow, all the knowledge he had of God didn't actually help him to trust God when it mattered the most. And also, as I said a little earlier, Jonah uses a whole bunch of language talking about I and me and what God did for him. But he doesn't say anything about the Ninevites he was called to preach to. He doesn't say anything about the sailors whose lives he had endangered with his own disobedience except to criticize them vaguely by saying they cling to worthless idols. But the irony, the story is filled with so much irony, is that Jonah was the prophet of God, and he was on the boat, and he was called to pray, and the pagan sailors were the only ones praying. And they initially had no understanding or knowledge of God, the creator. But in the end of uh, chapter 1, in, in verse 16, it says that they pray and worship to God alone. That they have become faithful to God. These people who seemed so distant from God were actually the ones who were living obedient lives, while Jonah, the self-righteous prophet, was off in disobedience. And so Jonah knew the right things to do, but he was only thankful for God saving his own skin. And so after all this poetic praise and thanksgiving, the fish vomited Jonah onto dry land. I love the the language of the Bible. If you don't think God has a sense of humor, you, you're not reading the Bible right, because he vomited and onto dry ground. It doesn't say he placed him, he put him, he vomited him. And I, it could be my own little skew on this, so this isn't, uh, but I like to think that the fish got sick of him too. <laughs> you know, he's like, come on, man, like God's showing you so much love, so much grace, so much mercy. He's like, I'm done with you, blah. But the fish might have been sick of him, but God wasn't. God still shows up with Jonah through the rest of the story. And uh, I was talking to Barb this morning. She said, I wish I knew what happened after the book of Jonah, because it kind of leaves you on a cliffhanger. But uh, God shows Jonah so much love and so much mercy. And so our fickleness with God, our sometimes disobedience, sometimes our reluctance, is met with God's unrelenting love and his unrelenting mercy. So if we but ask for forgiveness, no matter what we've done, if we actually repent, God forgives us. And even sometimes, like in Jonah, God gives us mercy even when we, we didn't even ask. Maybe we didn't deserve it. Maybe we didn't earn it. We couldn't possibly. But God still creates mercy and creates situations where he helps us, even if we haven't apologized yet. He makes the first step. And so God's actions show his tenacious commitment to reconciliation with humanity. You know, reconciliation is necessary when there's been a brokenness in relationship. 
somebody has done something or said something, and in this case with humanity, it's that we rebelled. We chose to create other idols rather than following God. For Adam and Eve, it was they chose to doubt God's goodness, and they wanted to be in control of their own lives. They thought that perhaps God was keeping something good from them by keeping the knowledge from good and evil away from them. And so they chose and said, no, I'm not going to follow God in obedience. I'm going to do what I want. And we all make that decision on our own, one way or another, at one point or another. But the tenacity that God has for us, if we ever question God's goodness, we just have to look at what he did to try and reconcile the world to himself. God wasn't asked to do this, but God sent his son Jesus to the earth. He sent Jesus as a person to be uh, raised by a human family and then to live the perfect life, to go on the cross and to humble himself to the point of death as a way of redemption for all, as Philippians 2, 5 to 11 says. So Jesus descended into death for three days. And this shows us that there's no depth, there's no place, there's no way that you can ever get away from a place that Jesus has been before. Jesus descended all the way to death, all the way to Sheol, all the way to hell, so that no matter where you are, no matter how deep in sin you are, no matter how broken you are in your life, there's nowhere that you can go that God's forgiveness and mercy isn't there waiting for you. God is ready to forgive all of us, no matter what we have done. And he's ready to forgive the whole world, no matter what they have done, if they would but follow him. If they would but accept that love. It seems foolish to think that God has an amazing gift, this amazing grace, and that anyone would reject it. But dare we not become self-righteous? Because for a time, we all rejected that, who are followers of Jesus. So may we just humbly come to other people and say, God has an amazing gift for you. He loves you so much that he cares about you so much that he sent Jesus. And Jesus asked me to come and talk to you because I care about you. So like Jonah, Jesus went down to the depths. But unlike Jonah, he died to pay the price of sin for all of us. The cost of rebellion is death. Jesus as the source of life, when, when humanity chose to cut themselves off, cut themselves off from the source of life. So the natural result is death. But unlike Jonah, Jesus didn't rebel. Jesus didn't run away from the hard calling that God had placed on his life. Jesus obediently and willingly walked towards the cross to pay the price of sin for us. Jesus was the amazing, perfect messenger. He was willing to die for you, for me, for all of us. So he lived among us to pay the price so that God's amazing mercy, his amazing grace could be shown to us. And the sign of Jonah shows that Jesus cares about us. That just as God's mercy pursued Jonah, even as rebellion, God's mercy pursues us even when we choose to make bad choices. Even if we have chosen to rebel, even as our family, even as our friends, even as the people we interact with every day are running away, they're not beyond hope. As long as they are still living, there is hope for their lives. And Jonah was spit out onto dry ground so that he could go once again and preach the way God had called him originally. And Jesus was raised from death so that he could preach repentance 
and love and forgiveness once again. And to point the way. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And there is no way to get to the Father except through Jesus. And so Jesus created a way for us to go. Ephesians 4.10 says, He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Jesus descended into hell so that he could be raised and victorious over sin and death. So that we too could experience that same victory. Now, who here's life is perfect every day? Oh, there's nobody. Okay. Mine neither. While we're still on this earth, it's hard. There are hard days. There are sad days. We interact with broken people. We interact with people and we try and show them love. And they instead show us evil. We try and love somebody. We try and be merciful. We try and be gracious to somebody. We try to be kind. And we're met with spite and hate. But the amazing thing is, is because God showed us mercy. Because God showed us love. That we can choose to show people love, no matter what. And that's what we are called to. And may none of us be self-righteous. May none of us think that we are better than anyone else. Because we aren't. We are loved by God just as much as anyone else. But we may choose a better way. So we can choose to follow God no matter what we are going through. And so after we accept this wonderful gift of mercy and grace, we are asked to go and be messengers of this reconciliation. To go try and reconcile other people with God. But it's not our job to change hearts. It's not even our job to change minds. It's our job to love people and to tell them about the love of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who changes hearts and changes minds. So the amazing thing about this story of Jonah isn't the fish. It isn't even the amazing depths of Jonah's self-centeredness. The amazing thing about this story is the depth that God is willing to go to save us. The willingness that he has to show us love and grace. And the amazing thing is, is that it's not just like we were just a little bit of disobedient children. Romans 5.10 actually says that for, while, for if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son... How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You know, Jesus, while he was, on the, while he was uh, being persecuted and heading to the cross and on the cross, his words were, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know they're killing me. They don't, they don't know that they're, they're spitting on God. They don't know that I'm doing this because I love them. So if... Jesus on the cross can say, forgive them. To anyone who does anything to us, may we too be people who can forgive anyone of anything. Not because we're stronger, not because we're better, but because we've received grace. And we can show that grace to others. And so Jonah is a foreshadow for and a contrast to God's ultimate messenger of mercy, Jesus. Jesus who is the Christ, who sacrificed himself for us. So may we too be messengers of God's mercy. I started this morning's message with the, referencing the example that Jesus gave of how to pray. And the, the prayer is called the Lord's Prayer. And it has different translations and it has some versions that add a few th- verses to it. But uh, this morning, I just want to uh, together, collectively, pray this prayer together. 
But before I do, I'll just read it out and kind of explain a little bit of what the depth and meaning behind it is. It's, it goes, our Father in heaven. So it's declaring that God is our Father, and he's our Father. He calls us his sons and daughters who have come to faith in him, and that he is in heaven. He is victorious in heaven. He, that is where he dwells, and that's where he lives. And hallowed be your name. Hallowed is an old school word, which means his name be holy. His name be held high. His name be held reverence. It's a simple way of saying that God's name is high. So it's saying even your name is holy. Even your name is amazing. It's giving God praise. And then in verse 10, your kingdom come. There's a, the tension that we live in is that God's kingdom is here, but it's not quite yet. That Jesus has conquered sin and death, and yet people still sin and people still die. Because uh, in other verses, it says that God's mercy is uh, holding it back so that more and more people can come to faith in Jesus. And then your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a surrender. That's saying no matter what we pray, no matter what we want, no matter what we wish, we don't want our will. We want his will to be done. That his will is perfect. That what he wants is what's best. And then verse 11 is a cry, for, uh, a cry for provision. Give us today our daily bread. It's not asking for abundance. It's saying, give me what I need for today. Because that's all the worries I have. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on today. Give me what I need for today. And then verse 12, and forgive us our debts. Forgive us what we have done. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our, our uh, mistakes. Forgive us our bad choices. And then, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, this one sometimes is harder. <laughs> we want God to forgive us, but we want to hold on to what someone else has done to us. So this is saying, God, help us forgive our the people who have hurt us. Forgive the broken around us. And it's, and it's saying that we, we forgive them. And that's hard sometimes, but that's what we are called to do. And then the lastly, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So it's saying, help protect me. Don't put me through anything that's harder that I can bear. And we almost don't need to say that, but it's a reminder that God's there with us no matter what we're going through, that he'll help us and protect us. So if you're willing, uh, as the worship team comes forward to help us respond, may we respond in prayer by saying this together. Okay, it starts with, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for your gift of mercy, your gift of grace. And may we be people that uh, aren't self-righteous, but are people who are actions and our words and everything we do lines up with the mercy that we have received Jesus. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you give us. But most of all, thank you for your relationship with us. Jesus, we couldn't earn it. We couldn't buy it and we don't deserve it, but you love us and we thank you for that love and help us to be messengers of reconciliation and love to the world around us. And now as we stand and respond in praise, may we lift your name high. May you be hallowed in our lives. Jesus, we love you. Amen. Mm -hmm.